continuing our series in Lament today as we go through the season of Lent. We are lamenting the suffering that Jesus went through. We are lamenting the ways that we continue to suffer in this world as a community. And um, as Jay said when we, he first introduced the series, we're just allowing space for our pain to breathe. So in the past few weeks, Katie has interviewed some of our educators to talk to them about the difficulties in finding their purpose and clinging on to that sense that things are really hard and it's really hard to see where their careers are going, where the influence that they have on their students is going in the midst of remote learning and how difficult that's been. Last week, Vanessa brought in members of our community um, who are peacemakers and allowed them to just air out their grief about how hard it's been to do the work that they're doing as peacemakers in our community in the midst of this pandemic and in the midst of increasing political division. So today we're going to be continuing in the series by looking at the grief that Jesus experienced himself as we are leading up to Easter Sunday. We're going to look at what it was like for Jesus to be grieving and to feel like he was alone in that grief during his last hours before his death. And we're also going to be speaking to some of our healthcare workers to follow up with them. Because really, if anyone has been on the front lines and still dealing directly with the fallout of COVID, it's our health care workers. So we'll be speaking to Rayanne, who's an ICU nurse who was here when patient zero, yes, <laughs> who was here when patient zero came into Southern California two years ago, the very first COVID patient in our area. We'll also be speaking to John Lee, who's a psychiatrist. Where's John? Okay, yeah, psychiatrist, right? Okay, so a psychiatrist who's been working with healthcare workers and is also working on making sure that he's taking care of his own mental health during this difficult time. So first of all, let's talk about Jesus's experience of suffering and grief during his last hours here on earth. So we're talking specifically today about what it feels like when the world seems to have moved on and we're still dealing with grief that other people may not see or may not understand. So um, nowadays, I frequently hear people say, and I find myself saying oftentimes, you know, oh, now that things are back to normal, or you know, now that we're post-COVID, and you know, COVID is behind us. The fact is, it's not really behind us. But I think so many of us are just exhausted from the last two years of dealing with this pandemic, and we've experienced a level of hope that we haven't experienced with the vaccines coming out, with the surge in cases um, not happening quite as frequently in our area, and with people not dying as frequently as before during the pandemic. It's just exhausting to continue to try to hang on to that sense of urgency that we sometimes forget that there are still people that are dealing with it very much day to day. Um, there's also this sense that we're not even aware sometimes of the suffering that people are feeling. So I noticed that in our news media, we've been talking a lot about Ukraine and I think um, part of the reason why that war is on the news all the time is that it is still so fresh. And I think arguably, too, because it is a war and a conflict that's affecting white Europeans, let's be honest. Um, but the fact is that there's been suffering of a very similar nature that's been going on. And I'm not going to compare conflicts between each other because that doesn't really make sense. Like, all human life is precious and all types of suffering, the human toll on people as a result of war, is not even comparable to each other. But the fact is, Syria has been going through a civil war for 11 years now. And there's 22 million that have been displaced. That's more than twice the number that Ukraine has experienced so far. So again, not to compare, but we just have a sense of the trauma that is to come. In Yemen, the, Saudi, um, the Saudis have been 
suppressing the Houthi rebellion there, slaughtering civilians, and yet the U.S. is still continuing to send millions and millions of dollars in arms to Saudi Arabia to continue to suppress the Yemeni government. In Afghanistan, our government basically abandoned them in like only eight months ago. And how often do we hear about the impact of the Taliban and their government on people nowadays? And then even in Tigray, there's reports of ethnic cleansing that's being, that allegations of ethnic cleansing that are being performed by the Ethiopian government against the Tigrayans. And yet we hear very little about that. And I can imagine for these other countries, like, that are, they're seeing what's happening in Ukraine and they very acutely are experiencing, this is wrong, this is something that's happening to us. But at the same time, where is the attention of the world? And again, you know, we only have so much attention that we have as people that we can engage and feel sympathy and empathy for people. And you know, we have an upper limit. We've talked about that in previous weeks, where at some point, you can only care so much. You can only do so much and feel so much. And then you just become exhausted. Another reason why the world might seem not to care about the suffering that we're experiencing is that they don't even understand why it is that we're experiencing grief. And they're but someone who coined a term for this, um, he's a bereavement expert called Kenneth Doka, and he calls this type of grief disenfranchised grief. So disenfranchised grief describes a feeling of loss where it isn't openly acknowledged, socially marred, or publicly supported. So for example, if someone has had a really close pet for many years and that pet passes away, when they hear someone say something like, well, it's not like you lost a child, it invalidates their grief. It makes them feel like my grief doesn't matter as much because society tells me that it isn't valid. Other types are of grief, of disenfranchised grief. No, I'm not going to tell the story, Miles. Stop looking at me. <laughs> Other types of disenfranchised grief. He was upset one time about, uh, and I found out it was about a hockey match that didn't go well. Anyway. <laughs> Other more serious types of disenfranchised grief are, <laughs> for example, when someone has a loved one or you know a family member or an online friend that they've never even met in person before. I had this experience before where I had a friend who had only met online, never in person, and he died suddenly. And it really sucked, but it was one of those very isolating situations where I, could feel like, I felt like I couldn't really talk to anyone about it because it seems weird to grieve someone who I never met in person. But the fact is, in these types of disenfranchised grief, the pain is very much real. And it's even more isolating when we don't understand, or when we feel like nobody understands, and nobody recognizes that pain, even though it's very real to us. So this consequence of living with disenfranchised grief is that we can often feel like we're living in two separate realities. So we have the external reality of the world moving on and functioning as normal, and then there's our inner reality of feeling this immense sense of suffering and hopelessness about the future. And this feeling of living in two separate realities can lead to, understandably, feelings of not quite being completely present. It can lead to insomnia. It can lead to trouble focusing. It can lead to being emotionally overwhelmed. And I feel like we've all experienced this type of grief before. We're going to look in particular about Jesus experiencing this disenfranchised grief and this feeling of being alone during his last hours. So, we're going to try to understand what Jesus was grappling with before his death by looking at the story of the Last Supper and the moments leading up to his death in Luke 22. So in Luke 22, verse 24, 
Jesus is having the Last Supper, the last Passover meal with his disciples before he's crucified. And verse 24 says, A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Simon replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. So in the midst of just having told his disciples that he was going to be crucified and betrayed by his friends, Jesus is living with the suffering of knowing that this is going to happen to him, and meanwhile has to mediate some bickering between his disciples about who is the greatest. So what seems to be a petty complaint during the time that Jesus is suffering most, Jesus still takes the time to go and address his friends' concerns and to teach them one last time. He also reminds them to encourage them. Hey, remember when I sent you out to go on missions and I told you not to bring anything? Did you lack anything? They said, nothing, Lord. He said, well, now you need to sell your cloak and go buy, two, uh, and go buy swords. And his point in this case was not to tell them to go and arm themselves. Clearly not, because later on, one of his disciples cuts off, when he's about to be arrested, one of his disciples cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. Jesus restores it and says, enough of this, and tells them to stop fighting. So clearly Jesus' point was not to tell them, you need to go and arm yourselves. His point was really to tell them, I have provided for you before, and I'm going to provide for you again. And in asking this question, go sell your cloak and go buy swords, and they just happen to already have swords on them. They're like, oh, we've got some right here. Of course they do. They had heard his words saying that he was going to be crucified and that he would be betrayed. And so their way of approaching this conflict is to say, we're going to bring some swords to this fight. We're going to make sure that we defend our Savior, despite everything that Jesus has told them. So not only is it isolating that he's living in this reality that he is about to die and that nobody seems to care, but they're doing the exact opposite of what he has taught them their, like his entire ministry. So like, how much more of a slap in the face is that? And then Jesus, rather than chastising them for bringing the swords. He kind of just shuts down the conversation and says, that's enough. Verse 39 says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. 
He withdrew about a stone's throw from them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So while Jesus was steeped in the reality that he was going to be suffering um, terribly, his friends had just eaten the equivalent of a Thanksgiving meal, and they were understandably sleepy and exhausted from having difficult conversations all night long during dinner. Falling asleep was a very human thing to do. And yet Jesus wanted his friends to pray with them so that they wouldn't fall to the temptation of abandoning him. He knew they were going to abandon them, him, but he still held on to the hope that if they prayed, they would be able to resist that temptation. So Jesus alone was willing to seek God in this very desperate time, in this hour of need of his. And while he was holding the reality of his death and trying to hold on to the hope that his friends were going to betray him, he was still holding on to the hope that they wouldn't. As a community, we don't want to make the mistake of bringing swords when what Jesus asks us to bring is our presence and our prayers. We want to be present to the grief that our friends have, and we want to let their pain breathe. So this is the example that Jesus set for us in his last hours before his death. Just be present. You don't need to come fighting. You don't need to come with solutions. Just sit and let people feel the pain that they're suffering. So with that, I'd like to invite up Ann and John um, as we move into a time of sharing about what this past season has been like for them, these past two years, and how their relationship with God is evolving. So, would you guys like to introduce yourselves? John? Sure, yeah. So, I'm John Lee. I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, oh. Hi everyone, I'm Rayanne. Um, like Nan said, I work in the ICU and I've been working for 13, almost 14 years there now, in the same hospital. So um, we previously interviewed Rayanne on one of our lament panels last year during the first anniversary of COVID. And um, one thing I took note of from that conversation was when Rayanne described this idea of living in two separate realities, which is very much what the sense of disenfranchised grief was. And maybe in your case, it wasn't disenfranchised grief, but it was very much living in a certain reality of suffering when you're at work, and then coming home, you had just had twins. <laughs> I guess they were a year old by that point. And coming home and trying to act like things are normal, even though things clearly were not, and things were not okay. So um, just wanted to ask you, how has it been for you with the world seeming to have moved on from the COVID pandemic, and yet you're still dealing with patients who have COVID. You're still dealing with the fallout, really, of um, all of the conflicts that happened during the past year. What has that been like for you? Um, wow, I'm trying to keep this short, but um, <laughs> I'll just be honest. Um, it's hard to uh, put into words. Um, the, the impact of this pandemic has had on um, 
on me and our team, but um, I just want to say that um, this all kind of hit me with March, when March hit, because it's a two-year anniversary of everything, and um, for so long to have to carry um, the grief and the um, the gravity of what I've seen and what I've experienced in myself, in my friends at work, in our patients and families. Um, it's just overwhelming, like not one person can carry it. Um, and so at the two-year mark, um, I believe it was during our life group, <laughs> it just all came out and um, I had realized that I'm just finally at a place to breathe or just to even allow my pain to breathe because um, of all the waves that have come and gone and um, even though our numbers have, have, have decreased so much um, that we still have really um, critical and sick patients coming into the hospital whether it be for lack of care and just you know the past two years so there's just this, a little bit of window for, for me to kind of start processing it. Um, so it's a very vulnerable time. It's a very scary time um, for me internally as a person because as like an Enneagram 9, <laughs> I'm learning that um, it's what has helped me kind of survive, I would say, is kind of just um, in ways that look like avoiding or look like I'm just going to do this to survive this moment that I'm gonna put in what I need to do because we're having all these patients like you can't just leave you know just this is people are hurting people are suffering and dying and um, we're just conditioned to do that to work the extra shift to to keep going keep going 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 and to not feel like there's an end it's really like, I feel like I've changed so much as a person, as a nurse, and it's scary to think that, um, to feel the humanity of myself, like, to be, um, to give myself permission to be human. Um, that's the scariest thing, because it's real, and it's raw, and it's not. It doesn't feel safe. Um, so um, I just want to say that I feel that I'm able to start processing now because I felt like this has been such a safe space um, to do so. And, um, and I know that there's, it's not so linear, like healing, like I thought. Growing up, I thought, okay. God's going to heal this part, and then I can move on, and then I can kind of keep going, right? Um, but as far as the pain, it doesn't go away, as depressing as that sounds. Um, but, um, and um, I think there's a lot of things happening, like internally, that I'm coming to terms to, and just starting to work and process the grief part of it. 
Um, uh, so that's like what's that's vulnerable and scary. Um, but again, I just thankful to be in this space, even though just because I feel so safe, I feel like I can um, be myself and uh, breathe and uh, just to. Um, to start to have language for it, which is super important too. Um, so yeah. One thing that you and I were talking about before service today was the trauma training mm -hmm. that our church had yesterday. So if you guys are new or you don't know, um, Pastor Dave, who is also um, a doctor um, or psychi psychologist, um, has been leading a series of trauma training, trauma-informed church trainings for our church, which has been really impactful. I was able to go to the first one. Um, I wasn't able to go to the one yesterday, but from what I understand, um, there was some language put to the trauma that you've been witnessing over this past two years. Mm -hmm. So um, can you speak to what that training was like for you and how that's informed your view of what has happened over the past two years for you? Yeah, um, there's definitely some key things that stood out to me initially, just kind of learning more about what trauma really is. And that um, one big thing that hit me front on was that trauma persists and that it, it lives in the body. Um, and as I mentioned with healing, like we think, okay, we're gonna heal this part and it'll be better. Um, but it's just like a, a, not a linear um, thing, but that it's um, the awareness of it being in a life, an ongoing thing. It's slow, it's not rushed. Um, when I am so inclined to find the solution and to fix it and to, to keep going and um, to have an answer, to find meaning, whereas it's a slow process. And I think it's in that slow process there's Jesus like inviting me to trust him to say, like, I got you, you know, like I understand what that feels like. Um, and, and then just kind of, yeah, um, going in that pace. And um, another thing is just finding language to PTSD and um, for healthcare workers, it being specifically like secondary trauma, having witnessed that um, front on, whether it be like taking care of a patient or talking with their family members, or even like talking amongst our coworkers and our doctors. And um, so a lot of like the symptoms that was um, shared and introduced to me, which is new, is like, wow, this is word by word, like word for word, this is exactly what it is. And, um, it was validating to feel that and also scary because that's a lot to take in. And I was very physically just exhausted. And there again, just that um, the truth that trauma is a physical, it persists in the body. And um, so I think that was really helpful and um, also hard at the same time. And I, I think I just went into the training feeling like I want to be able to um, receive, you know, and and just receive the care that I feel like I'm ready to receive now. Um, and again, like to fight my like 
my innate thing to try to fix. <laughs> and, uh, and that's like the hard part. I think it's like a constant thing um, to, to do. So, and also just the conversation, it's, it's, it can't all be dealt with at one place at one time too. So there's like gonna be a part three, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, as long as we live this life, right? I think trouble and suffering and pain is there. Um, and how we um, are aware of that in ourselves and each other. Um, I've been trying to just kind of receive, like reading a little bit here and there um, about lament too. And um, the words I keep see hearing too is like lament being a minor key. So it's kind of like a cliffhanger. Um, there's no res resolve. And, um, but it's not to say that there is no hope. Um, it's not to say that um, because of who we are, right, as um, believers of Jesus, that um, it doesn't end there, too. Um, and so there's a lot of things that I am processing. I'm super grateful to start to have some language for it now. And I feel like John, you could definitely speak a lot to that. As a mental health care provider, I'm sure you've had to deal with a lot of secondary trauma and even trying to manage your own mental health in dealing with all of that. So can you tell us about how your journey has been during these past years? Yeah, I mean, um, where to begin? I think, um, I think my role has been obviously like a few layers removed from, you know, the frontline folk. Uh, I'm not certainly seeing people in the emergency department or resuscitating people in the ICU, um, but I have seen a number of healthcare professionals, particularly nurses, um, you know, who are who are really on the front lines making those game time decisions of does the 70 year old you know widower go to the icu or the 40 year old mother of five who's a single parent or you know the 16 year old who's come in um, and having to make those decisions over and over and over and over again and dealing with you know the nursing staff the healthcare workers the family members who are now all so um you know traumatized and angry and rageful that their their family member didn't get in and so yeah it's been kind of um i'm still still sort of processing or finding the words myself as well to think about how to articulate this particular brand of of pain or suffering um and i think these past two years have just been so like reifying that we are human <laughs> like i'm human Rayanne is human all of us are human and we have our limits and there is a certain threshold or allostatic load beyond which you know all of us are going to break at some point um and so yeah it's been a very humbling and sobering process just to confront like there's no amount of prozac to make the pandemic go away or there's no amount of you know, to, to, to erase this, this sort of memory from all of our collective consciousnesses. I feel like um, a lot of us have gone into our chosen careers wanting to bring solutions, wanting to facilitate help, but also wanting to fix things, like you're saying. So I was wondering for each of you, how has your view of your role changed as a result of not being able to fix things? And 
having to sit in that pain and deal with that trauma on a daily basis. Um, so I, th I think for me, I feel, I mentioned earlier that I feel like I've changed as a person and like as a nurse. Um, and again, like having experiences in ICU for so many years, we're not, we're familiar with, with death and, you know, the end of life discussions and things like that. Um, I think what seeing just this amount and degree of pain, however, it's really a reminder, again, that I am not the savior, like I, I'm not the hero, <laughs> that I cannot, I don't have all the answers. And so it's a really humbling place to be because as a nurse or healthcare provider, you know, if you're sick, you turn to us, like we should be able to, to find ways. And, and this, in this pandemic, to have to over and over and over again say, the same thing, like, I'm sorry, we're doing everything we can, and that's it. It's really, really, really difficult to be in that place, and I think as things are opening up, in the hospital even, like we're having more visitors come in now and family members come in, um, it's hard not to separate that because the memories come back and I still work in the same unit. When I go in a room, I'm gonna remember this mom who I took care of. I'm gonna remember this this young person I took care of and the family and the conversations that were there. So it's to slow down and to give attention in myself to that before I move on <laughs> to what I my tasks or things I have to do that shift. It's, it takes work and um, to like face it and to realize, okay, I am experiencing this internally and I am here to serve this patient um, and this family member. And so I think because I'm learning to like slow down, I am also, it's coming out of me too, or like I am trying to just be present and engage <laughs> and not just like go through my day um, jaded or whatnot, which it's very common and um, it's easy to have the tasks be uh, a, a to avoid or distract us. So um, I think it's made me fight to be present in myself like internally and with the people I care for now um, and also my coworkers, but also like just not feel like I have to have the solutions, right? And I think also as a people of faith, it's hard because we've I've grown in the church and I've, I've you know there's that like self like or shame or self blame. It's like I. I know what hope looks like. I, I should have the answers, you know, or like I, I know um, what usually we do, 
um, when someone is hurting. And um, so it's, again, just having that space to sit in the suffering and the tension and the being uncomfortable, being scared. Um, and yeah, so it's just a constant um, struggle, I think, now um, because it's, it's so common because we've been so traumatized in the healthcare field that it's, um, I don't, I can't speak for all my coworkers, but you know, the overall feeling is just like, we've reached our limit, like we've, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's to the point where it has changed so many of us and it has, um, affected like the care we provide to, I would say, um, and um, how we how we also like interact as coworkers and things, um, you know. I've I'm thankful that we have a team um, that we've been pretty honest with each other mostly. I mean, it's you know we're in survival mode, um, but it's like now we're just trying to kind of see how we're everyone else is how each of us are doing in that space. So it's. Yeah, a continuing conversation. Um, I think like going to med school and being a good student and getting good grades and all of that, I kind of went through life thinking like I was like Beyonce, Kelly, or Michelle. Like, I'm a survivor, I'm gonna make it, I will survive. You know, and just figure out that way, right? To, to get out of the situation. Um, and I think this this whole this whole like situation has taught me like wow you know there's really not that much hard work or answers or studying that can prepare you for the amount uh, the sheer amount of grief and like trauma that there is and so I think in the moments where I've been sitting in front of you know the young college student who's like completely socially anxious because she hasn't been face to face with a peer in like years and years and like doesn't know now the social mores and trying to like help her along or like the person who's really depressed and suicidal because their their parents have passed away from COVID or whatever other financial strain it's like wow god I don't you know there's I don't know I don't know what to say and I think in those moments it's like reminding myself that that I can only really bear kind of witness or to be like kind of present with that person or hopefully encourage them to open up some space in themselves to expand around whatever pain or, or grief they're experiencing. I think something that God works in very mysterious ways. <laughs> I have a patient of mine who was telling me at the beginning of this pandemic about acceptance and commitment therapy, which I'd never heard about before, and he had heard, of, uh, heard about it on a TikTok. And I was like, oh, okay, what is this? And so I started to delve more um, into ACT. And one of the principles of ACT is that like pain is endemic to life. It's endemic or like part of, like Rayanne was saying, to, to human existence. And I think that that principle alone has helped change the way that I used to think that, you know, to live that good and meaningful life, we need to fix it or we need to eliminate the anxiety or the pain or the grief. Um, to, to come to see those as actually human experiences that if we are too quick to invalidate or pray away, it really does a disservice to the person in front of us. And so I think the 
grace of God in this situation has been to show me gently my limits over and over again and the limits of my knowledge and to remind me that he is you know, ever present in that space, in the people that I'm seeing, and that he ultimately has that, that kind of ability to heal, not me. So. Although sometimes I still wish I was Destiny's child. <laughs> <laughs> you got the talent for sure. <laughs> so, um, so close our conversation. Let's talk about what it takes for you to be Destiny's child. Like, <laughs> what is it that helps you to survive through all of the suffering? Like, it's yes, we can sit in it, but like, how do you continue to function and have hope? Singing, John? Music. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely music. So, <laughs> so before I hop down all the like, you know, ten lists, bullet lists, or whatever, I think like really, it. I think, um, you know, to quote India, continue to breathe, continue to breathe in times like these. That's what your heart is for, and I think coming back to that idea that like all the trauma all the grief all the pain all the suffering that's so abstract and inarticulate and like hard to like put into words up here when we come back to our bodies that god has given us like he's given us a diaphragm and a vagus nervous system that is that rest and digest nervous system that we can engage just like with that breath after every 10th email that you send after every fifth patient you see to just breathe into that diaphragm and to breathe into the pain that you that I carry, I guess, in my chest and my shoulders and head. Mm -hmm. um, and as I'm doing that, to, to pray um, or to be heightened to God's presence and all of that. To come back, I guess, in a way to my body. Because sometimes I'm so cerebral and trying to abstract and analyze and formulate that I forget like what's actually the person who's in front of me and I forget to see, you know, my family or I forget to see um, church members who are here like loving me and I can't receive that as much as God's gift to me because I'm so, so up here. So I think coming, coming back to breathing, I think Prozac or fluoxetine does help. I don't have any shares in GlaxoSmithKline or Wyatt, but uh, that in therapy and, uh, <laughs> and, and also just, I think, you know, reevaluating. I think the pandemic has made me like I underwent a huge career change. I used to work at UCLA, the best in the West, and I completely left that place because it was a toxic cesspool. And sometimes I still like <laughs> long for. I still long for the fish and the vegetables of Egypt, but I know that I'm I'm in a different world now. Um, so so yeah, like I I think having left that situation, um, you know, I've I've been more present to the beauty that surround I, it sounds so lame but the beauty that surrounds me that god has given me in my in my wife and my in my son in you know the the sound of the birds in the water at the fullerton arboretum in like just the ability to sit and uh, be in the shade of a, a large tree that i didn't plant i didn't create but i get to enjoy um and i think that has been really um reaffirming that god is real and that he's
caring for me and that he also cares for the people that I see and I don't have to try so hard to make it happen. Um, For me, I think um, I think it starts for me just personally too. I feel that reminding myself again that God sees me as His beloved and just starting from that place because how He sees me and um, how He is present has been present with me. And has allowed me to give myself permission to be human and to be um, present. I think it's for me starts from that again identity and like and just that um, the way that Jesus Himself, the incarnate Christ, came and He's He knows fully how suffering is. He knows fully what we can ever experience in this lifetime, right? Um, and so I think just reminding myself or having to remind myself over and over about that. Um, and I just cannot do this without um, the support systems that I have around me, um, especially my husband and our, um, in the ways that God has used him, how God has used my daughter to like speak life into me, that's crazy. Um, in the ways that I see joy in my boys and as life is crazy and busy at the moment <laughs> but um, I think in those like daily things I've just I've stopped trying to make to strive so hard I think I'm learning like to stop striving so hard stop trying to like oh I have to make this time for God or I have to like do this and this but that he like meets me when I'm washing dishes and like when I'm like when the emotions hit me and I'm like just opening up and uh, so just to have be open to having the the conversations with God too, like the honest and real like raw conversations with God <laughs> um, that's not inhibited and um, and also in my so in myself and like in the community too um, here just how healing it has been to receive from you and I'm looking out and I see specific people you know just and that um, have been this huge including you Nan, <laughs> been this huge presence in my life um, and has given me like the strength to keep moving to keep going and the strength to also to pause and stop and the strength to also be aware of like where I'm at. Um, there's so much grace, and I think that's like what how it looks to have Jesus embodied in the community um, is so important um, right now, and not just like for healthcare workers, but for all of us. I think just kind of seeing how um, how that is. Um, seen through community and through the people that are put in your lives. Um, so I'm just very thankful to have that support and that it's not the end, but I have hope that it's that discipline of hope, as I mentioned earlier, that is um, there. And 
Um, yeah. Well, thanks guys for sharing your pain. Thanks for sitting, letting us sit in it with you. And um, I just want to pray a prayer of closing over us. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the ways that you have allowed Rayanne and John to be your hands and feet. I thank you for the ways that you give us opportunities to serve one another, but Thank you also for the reminder, Lord, that as we deal with pain, it's important to just sit and to breathe and to be present to what's in front of us and to be present to your presence in our lives, Lord. I pray a prayer over Rayanne and John um, that as they are continuing to deal out with the fallout of the pandemic, as they're continuing to deal with the changed relationships in their lives, Lord, as a result of these past few years, um, I pray that they would just feel more and more grounded um, in your presence, Lord. I pray that they would be aware of you, that they would feel you walking alongside them, Lord. And I just pray that we can all continue to air out the things that we're sad about and to listen to each other. Um, and I just pray for blessings on this community, Lord, as we continue to lament together. 